Morning, everybody. When last we got together, we were in John uh, chapter 6, and there had been a big miracle, a sign, as John might say, of the feeding of the 5,000. That's a big day, right? You feed 5,000, that's a big day. And if you'll recall, uh, as it says in verse 15, when Jesus, this is chapter 6, by the way. When Jesus finished up, they were about to take him to force him to become king. To anoint him, as it were, um, as their new leader, as, you know, the the spear point of the cause that that they were interested in, which, of course, would be to get out from under Roman oppression. They were in some ways looking for a Messiah, though perhaps not the Messiah that they should have been looking for. But that's where we left him. It says in the latter parts of verse 15, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So now we pick up the action in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now what sea is this? The Sea of Galilee. That's right. John sets a scene for us. It says, it was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. Now they had had a long day too, right? They had seen a lot. They had... um, started this food distribution sometime in the afternoon. Uh, they had had enough time to distribute it to 15, 20,000 people. They had had time enough to go around and gather up what was left. They had had a chance to kind of just somehow process this a little bit. And then they had seen Jesus, uh, as he would often do, head to the hills uh, to have some time by himself. And they had been waiting for him, uh, but he wasn't coming. And they were ready to leave. It says in verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. The Sea of Galilee, as we understand it, is about seven miles across. They had, been going, they had gone about halfway over. Mark tells us it was rough already, and the, typically the winds would have been coming uh, from the west. They were heading west, so they were heading into the wind. Uh, some people speculate they had been rowing for hours. It normally would have taken maybe an hour to get to the middle of the lake, Uh, but they had been rowing for perhaps four, five, six hours. Some people say it might have been three o'clock in the morning. Now, can you imagine what type of natural lighting would have been available at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of a windstorm back in those days? None, right? There's, it's a storm. There's no cloud cover. The stars are not out. The wind is not. I mean, the moon is not out. Um, I guess just by dead reckoning, and and they were 
by Hebrew standards. Uh, of course, we know that Hebrews weren't that fond of uh, water in general, but at least the fishermen had, uh, you know, knowledge of working on the boats. Um, presumably, they were simply heading into the wind, knowing that that was the prevailing direction of the wind for navigation, and things were storming, to say the least. Uh, the focus of John isn't so much on um, those circumstances, although he does lay it out, but we'll see what is his focus here. It says, verse 19, I'll pick up again. When they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, some commentators say in verse 21, when it says they were glad to get him into the boat, what, they, what he thinks they meant was, you know, they were glad they were able to get him in the boat, <laughs> that it was pretty stormy. Uh, again, this is one of those things where the, the accounts differ a little bit, whether as soon as he was there, everything got still, um, or whether it wasn't until he got into the boat that everything got still. But uh, you can imagine uh, lots of things are happening, right? The fact that they could even see him coming would have been miraculous. Uh, people have speculated maybe it was a, you know, the occasional bolt of lightning. And if you've seen that strobe effect, you, know, you see somebody far away, and then it strikes again a little bit later, and they're a little closer, and strikes again a little closer. I mean, this would have been crazy uh, for sure. Uh, in any event, they said, saw Jesus walking on the sea, <laughs> scary enough, um, coming near the boat, perhaps even scarier. And then he speaks, um, and maybe they recognize him by this time, <laughs> maybe they don't, because he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Now let's go back and remember, for those of you who may not have been here, we find out at the beginning of this chapter, verse 6, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And again, as you think of Passover, you're thinking of the Exodus, you're thinking of uh, how things were as the people of Israel got called out, uh, what was it like in the lead up to that, they would have known these stories they would have also known what led to their Redeemer coming for them, what led to Moses coming for them. He was a shepherd, and he came across, what, a burning bush. And the whole essence of that was um, the I am statement, right? Uh, God saying, I am. Who do, who do you say is going to send me? He says, the I am sent me. We know that Moses was afraid, you know, and, and went down and God says, you know, take off your shoes. This is holy. And so you, we get these echoes of, again, John's putting, you know, this in perspective for us. We saw the story about the God providing the bread um, uh, with the feeding of the 5,000. And now we get this uh, where... Uh, God is showing his command over the waters. Jesus is coming through the waters just as Moses 
came through the waters leading the people of Israel uh, and then the statements of it is I do not be afraid again these connections with what happened back then at Passover time uh, it, there's all these reminders right um, the ultimate point that he's continuing to drive through is that um, just as Moses was God's messenger to t remove you from bondage and take you to the promised land he is the new and the better Moses the new and the better prophet the new and the better bread as we'll see later that's going to take you to a new and better place and so John has all this for a reason. He's had time. He's had a few decades to reflect on all this now. And now he's bringing it into focus for us. I'll, I'll um, pause here just for a moment because um, it's worth reflecting that there is a little bit of a difference of opinion as to who John was writing to um, when he wrote this gospel. We know that he was the patriarch of several churches in and around um, Asia Minor, you know, Ephesus, all that area. And there's a strong argument to be made that he was writing to these young churches. But some people make the argument that he is actually writing to non-Christians uh, and or perhaps not just non-Christians, but maybe Jews who were interested. Um, so you could think if, if you picture that audience, um, a Jew, a faithful Jew, a devout Jew who is open to hearing how God has worked, think of how rich this message would have been to them because now this Jesus that they've heard about for a few decades isn't some renegade sent to wipe out everything that the Bible was about. Now they can really start to see this is the fulfillment of what the Bible was always pointing to. Uh, so just think about that. Verse 21 again, they were glad to take him into the boat and the focus of the miracle from the other Gospels was that the the waves calmed down and they were very amazed at that there was another miracle that happened which i think is perhaps even cooler immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going poof we are there you know it's like going to sleep on a plane and there, you know you're already landing Right. Yes, they do. Absolutely. So, as we've said several times, and this is a good point to highlight this later, um, Jesus kind of always had two audiences, right? Sometimes three, right? 
there was the audience sometimes from the skeptics, uh, then there was the audience of the people who were genuinely curious and perhaps open to his message, and then there was this, this audience of, of the guys that had been hanging out with him, the disciples, those who he had called to be part of uh, his, uh, his chosen 12, and um, as we see, as you're pointing out, sometimes their eyes don't open a whole lot sooner than everybody else's do. Um, but at least they were, um, they had that connection that kept them engaged. So the excellent point. And you, you do kind of wonder, did he say, y'all just go on and I'll catch up with you later? You would, you would think he said something like that, but then they were still waiting for him there. But it is kind of funny. I'm glad you made that point that at some point they just said, you know, we're, we're out of here. We're, we're you know, he's on his own, um, which is kind of funny. Verse 22. And by the way, um, this whole chapter, um, there's a lot. Um, I'm going to kind of go and um, until we don't go anymore, and then we'll stop uh, because it's, uh, it's going to blend into next week. So at some point we'll stop this week and then we'll pick up. Um, so instead of uh, a lesson and then a lesson, it's going to be uh, spread over two weeks. So don't get nervous if you think we're going to cover the rest of six. Uh, or if we're not going to cover the rest. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So uh, I'm sure some of the crowd of the 5, 15, 20,000, ever how many, had dispersed uh, to the surrounding area, but some were still hanging out. Um, they had had their bellies full. They said, I guess we're camping here tonight. Um, and they had been able to observe what happened. They saw the disciples leave, but they also saw that Jesus did not leave with them. But then when they woke up and started milling around, they saw that Jesus wasn't there and no one had seen him leave. So they said, well, I guess let's at least go to Capernaum because they presumably knew that's where the disciples were heading. So that's what they that's what they did. They themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, "When did you come here?" There's several meanings there and and we use we do the same thing. So we get somewhere, perhaps we're meeting up with somebody, and the person we're meeting with is already there, and we say, when did you get here? Well, we kind of want to know when did they get here, but what we're really asking is, how long have you been here? Right? Like, when did you get here? Like, right? That's, I mean, we do that. And that's kind of what they're saying. To, well, when did you get here? And in a way... It's perhaps a little of an accusative statement like, 
why'd you leave us? And you start to get this little bit of a tension there between a celebrity and their followers, right? And you see this play out in pop culture because there's this feeling of the followers that the celebrity kind of owes them a little something, right? We made you. You're popular because of us. You kind of owe us a little bit, right? So then you get, you know, you see this, right? In the media, there's, so the celebrities want the followers, but then they start to resent that they're being followed, right? Um, it kind of makes sense in a way, but it's hard to have one without the other. Obviously, Jesus wasn't just some celebrity, but, but you do get this little bit of a mentality from the, from the crowd side of things, like, when did you get here? And notice they've taken it down a notch from you're our new king and prophet to now he's just like back to a rabbi. Right? Because they're not feeling the love like they did after they got fed. So rabbi, when did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set his seal. Wow, so that's a lot, right? Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So look at what they said, verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So this, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They stopped listening when he said in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes. They keyed up on this word work and they said, okay, well, what, was, what must we, what is this work? What is it that we should be doing? Remember, what was the whole culture of the day as far as, as far as you relating to God? It was kind of a twofold thing, right? There was the annual sacrifices, and then there was following the law, right? The Pharisees, it was all about following the law. The rules, the work, what must we be doing? Um, and this would have been fitting with a rabbi, right? Because every rabbi had their own take, so to speak, on the teachings that were there. And they wanted to know, okay, well, what's your angle on this? What, how do we, what's your teaching? You know, how, how, do, what are, you, how are you interpreting all this? Uh, how would in your system, in your rabbi curriculum, so to speak, uh, what's important, you know, how do you, we get on your good side, you know, <coughs> where are we going? And so they'll key in on this idea of work. Verse 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So that was different, right? 
That was a different angle. Probably weren't expecting that. What is the work? The work is to believe. The work is to believe. Verse 30, so they said to him, by the way, this back and forth that's happening now, many people think has already transitioned into somewhat of a formal rabbinical setting. At the end of the chapter, verse toward the end of the chapter, verse 59, it says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So many people think that somewhere around verse 25, 26, 27, as this back and forth is happening, that this was, at this point, they're probably already in the synagogue, and there's already this somewhat traditional, for lack of a better word, give and take between a rabbi and the people that are quizzing the rabbi about things he said. Uh, you could imagine if there were rabbis around that they would travel around and you know go visit the local synagogue and speak there. I mean we have evangelists right that travel around and preach and so forth uh, we have missionaries who come and say, here's the work that I'm doing, that sort of thing. So it wouldn't have been that far-fetched. So we've got the, some new rabbi is in the synagogue, and they're quizzing him back and forth. Probably some had seen the, the miracle on the mountainside across the lake. Surely some of them had not, but, you know, obviously they'd heard of what had happened. So... So this back and forth of quizzing the rabbi, that's, that's the setting that you should picture there. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? In other words, okay, if you are, if you are some big deal, basically, is what they're asking. If you're such a big deal, if you're this new Moses, and if you want us to follow you, if you want us to believe in you, then prove it. Show us something. What, what works are you going to perform? What, what signs are you going to perform? And then they throw a verse at him, right? Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay. So it's like, okay, well, well, Moses, you know, did the whole manna thing. So what have you got? Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, this is the second time he says, truly, truly. We might say, okay, y'all, okay, then hear me on this. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. It's, it's always about perspective, right? It's always about perspective with Jesus. 
because he says that the work you need to do is actually to believe. That's the work you need to do. And Moses wasn't the one that gave that bread. God gave that bread. And then he says, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see this transition happening? They have been thinking literally about bread. They just ate literal bread. They've been talking about what God did in the wilderness with Moses and manna, which was bread that actually they ate, right? And now Jesus is shifting from literal bread to metaphorical, figurative bread. For the bread of God is he who, the bread of God is a person, he's saying. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I think they missed that part because they say, so give us this bread always. There are several Old Testament references that kind of blend across here. It just so happens. Psalm 77 has this um, verse uh, that talks about uh, his power over the waters. Verse 16 of Psalm 77, it says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. That's verse 18. Verse 19, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Interestingly, the verse they quote is from the very next psalm. Verse 23 of 78. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and he gave them the grain of heaven. So if they've been thinking about Psalm 78, it probably wouldn't have been too big of a leap for them to, when they start quoting that verse, to think about the previous psalm that talked about his power over the waters, which I'm sure everybody was still talking about, the fact that he had showed up there. Pretty interesting. Back to verse 35 of John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. We'll see as we go through John that there are several I am statements. I'm going to see if I can find the list here. 
Yeah. Here in chapter 6, we have, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he's going to say, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he's going to say, I'm the gate. Later in that chapter, he's going to say, I'm the good shepherd. Chapter 11, he's going to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, he's going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, he's going to say, I am the true vine. So, as you're thinking about um, John putting together his writing, there's several kind of organizational themes and motifs that are going through. Um, there's often a miracle or a sign, and then there's what the scholars call a, a discourse, where we would just talk about some teaching, right? So that's that's what we're in now. So there's been the signs of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, and now we're going to have this teaching, including an I am statement. So there's this back and forth. So John organizes things kind of along the, the Passover calendar, this sign with a discourse to follow pattern, uh, these I am statements scattered throughout the book. Uh, those are all ways of as people would hear these things, because it was probably often read out loud to people, um, your ear starts to pick up on some of these things, and it, it kind of helps you organize, it helps you remember them a little bit. So this is the first of those big I am statements, where he says, I am the bread of life. And again, this kind of connects with the living water talk with the woman at the well, right? Kind of connects with that. We had living water. Now we have bread of life. Jesus said to them, this is verse 35 again, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of who sent me, of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I would suggest that of all the sections of this chapter, if you were going to really do some study on it, these five verses would would be them. <laughs> this, this would be it. This would be the the focus because look at everything here working backwards verse 40 for this is the will of my father everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day what verse does that bring to mind or what chapter what setting john 3 this is nicodemus right this is the same general message listen to this this is chapter 3 uh, verse 
13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And listen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 6.40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. At first glance, you wouldn't think that this passage would open up the doors to the great Arminian versus Calvin debate. But you see it right here, right? As I'm sure you know, the classic um, kind of reformed Calvinist view of uh, election that God has chosen those who will be his versus the classic Arminian view that the invitation is open to everyone and whoever so will may come, right? And it's always been my best understanding that the answer to those dilemmas was yes. God chooses and we have faith how that happens I don't know but you see both sides of it here right so now with that in the back of your mind let's read it again verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me all that the father gives me will come to me that sounds like a lot of action on God's part Right? All of them. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And here's that eternal security verse. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Once I've got you, I've got you. It continues, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. I'm not going to misplace you, nor am I going to cast you out. I will not lose you. But everything he's given, I'm going to raise it up on the last day. Not only have, has God given you to me, not only am I going to not cast you out because of things that you can do, not only am I not going to forget you or, or ignore you, You've got a future with me. I'm going to raise it up on the last day. But then we've got this other part of it. Verse 40. The idea of looking toward the sun. And the idea of personal belief. Everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. There have been so many debates through history about which is true. How can you not just say both are true? 
And I would say that if, if you believe in a God only to the extent that you can understand him, then your God is too tiny. And that if God isn't amazing enough to do things that are beyond you, then again, your God is way too tiny. I believe in a God who's totally big enough to make this all work out. Uh, this may be a good stopping point, but let's plunge ahead a, a, a little preview, we'll call it. Verse 41, God bless him. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They probably didn't miss this I am part, right? They probably didn't miss that. This probably was a bit of a thorn. And then, of course, when you don't have anything else to debate a person about, you go to the most prejudicial thing and you start questioning their family. Right? <laughs> Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? We know them. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? What's up with that? We know. We, Jesus, we know you. We know your mom and dad. You know, we know, we remember you. We saw you. How can you possibly say that you've come down from heaven? I think you've gotten a little too big for your britches. That's the... That's the southern paraphrase. But that's what they said, right? And, and some people have taken this, this comment, um, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know, um, that maybe Mary and Joseph have by this time moved to Capernaum. You know, maybe they're not in Nazareth anymore. Maybe they've moved to Capernaum. We know that it was in and around the Sea of Galilee where where um, he called, you know, James and John and Andrew and Peter and his earliest disciples. And, um, and, you know, it makes sense that he would start not far from where he grew up. So, you know, so at least we get some geography uh, out of this. But, um, again, their, um, their eyes just aren't yet open, right? I have, I, you know, it, it's easy to poke fun, but we'd probably be right there with them, right? We'd probably be right there with them because they're literally, their eyes weren't opened yet. And, and they probably wouldn't be, but, but that's part of, I think that's part of where John is telling his story because when you put, when you put comments in here like this, doesn't that just make it seem so real? I mean, isn't this real human nature? to doubt, to question, to be a cynic? Of course it is. So I think it just adds to the authenticity. Not only do I believe it to be true, but it just sounds true. You know, if you were writing a fake book, you wouldn't put all this in there, right? You just wouldn't. All right. Focus on that passage. And let's close with our key verse 
my coffee in here. I know some people need to clean out their purse. I need to clean out my Bible. It's got so many things in it. Uh, anyway, let's flip over. Oh, is there one behind me? Oh, here we go. Yes. I should just, I should just start bringing my new American. All right, John 20, verse 31. Let's read this. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's starting to make sense, right? He's written these things so that we can believe, and he's unfolding it in a way that just just makes sense. All right, let's close. Father, we thank you for just the the reality, the authenticity, the the truthfulness that just comes from these pages. We thank you for just these crazy mysteries that hit us, you know, the fact that you called us, the fact that we can look to you in belief, and how all that works together just makes us say glory. We thank you for your son, through whom we can be part of this family of your family. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.